5, verses 3 through 5. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. Good morning. It's good to be with you. My name's Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at King's Church. I want to start off by uh, sharing with you a quote from Mahatma Gandhi. He was, of course, the famous Indian activist who helped India gain its independence from British rule in the 20th century uh, using nonviolent civil disobedience. Now, of course, he wasn't a Christian, but he had this to say about Jesus and his followers. He said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Now, this is a common perspective from uh, people outside of the Christian faith. Uh, Jesus, they say, loved people. Christians judged people. Jesus hung out with the outcasts. Uh, Christians are self-righteous bigots. Now, you might feel that these stereotypes are unfair, uh, but the truth is, whether they are fair or not doesn't really matter. This is what people think outside of the church. And as Christians, we have to take that criticism seriously and consider uh, Our calling as Christians, remember last week we looked at the first couple verses of chapter 5 and David uh, shared with us uh, these verses, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. A Christian is someone who has identified themselves with Jesus and chosen to follow him, becoming like him. So someone like Gandhi should say, I like your Christ and I like your Christians because they are like your Christ. And that really is the point of any church. That's our mission as a church is to see all of you become more like Jesus. We, we call that discipleship. And, and that is what I believe every church is called to do is to help their people become more like Jesus. And we talk about it in these terms of up, in, and out. We haven't used that phrase in a while, but that's still at at the the heart of what we're trying to do. We believe that all of us uh, should grow and become more like Jesus up in our relationship with God, that we should all grow uh, in growing awareness of who we are, so in, understanding both our sin and how much we're loved and where we need to grow and where we need to be stretched, but also out, becoming more like Jesus and how we love other people. And so we have this holistic understanding of 
how we become like Jesus. It's not just by coming to church. It's not just by having a, a Bible study. It, it, it involves all of us, all of who we are. And that's our measure of success as a, as a church. Are you becoming more like Christ? Are you becoming more like him? And so the natural question I hope you're asking, well, what does that look like? What does it look like to live like Jesus? And the truth is to describe Jesus is to describe his life in both positive and negative ways. In other words, to describe Jesus is to describe things Jesus did, which are the positive ways of describing him, but also to describe him in ways and things that he didn't do. That's the negative. And discipleship should always involve both. It should always involve the positive and the negative. It's like raising your children, teaching them how to, to live. You'll use positive and negative instructions. <clears throat> I, I use, I'll use this simple etiquette example. You know, I'll tell my kids, you're a mather. Mathers look people in the eye when they introduce themselves. That's a positive thing that you do when you're a mather, when you're part of this family. Now, I'll also use the negative. Mathers don't call people stupid. Or idiots. That's not how we talk in our family. Now that's what Paul's doing here. Paul's basically saying, you're in Jesus' family. So now there are things you should be doing, the positive, and things you shouldn't be doing, the negative. And he started out with the positives, didn't he? He started out saying, hey, you should love. You should forgive. And we all, we all, we can identify with that. We can say, bravo, that's good. Jesus, yeah, Paul, yes, we should do those things. But now he started talking about the negatives, and this is where we get uncomfortable. He starts throwing out the rules, and that's when people start saying, well, that's all Christianity is. It's about rules. It's about, you know, this straitjacket of morality and, and, and puritanical restrictions and how we should live our lives. And you notice these negative instructions Paul gives here. He talks about sexual immorality and impurity, covetousness, greed, which is, that's basically greed, uh, moral, uh, materialism. Uh, he talks about filth, filthy, foolish, crude language. And he goes so far uh, to say this in verse 3, that these things, these qualities, these characteristics, these lifestyle, this kind of lifestyle, must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. So he's saying that an outsider should observe the people of King's Church and see our daily behavior, not just here, but at home, in your workplace, at the gym, where, at the restaurant, wherever you are, at the theater... They should see you and, and never have an opportunity to name this kind of behavior, these kinds of vices. And he uses this word saint. And this is a challenging word for us today. It simply means, it doesn't mean this person that has it all together, that they're perfect, this religious person that never messes up. It means a person who's set apart. It's not a perfect person, but it's a, perf a person that's been set apart for a purpose. You know, we tend to think of that, of a saint as that person, um, you know, that never messes up. But it's, an, it's more of an identity that you're given when you become a Christian. 
It's an identity. Once you give your life to Christ. Now, does it mean when you have this new identity that you're never going to have struggles, that you're never, it's never going to be a battle, it's never going to be a fight? No. This new identity comes from the gospel that tells us that by faith in Jesus, you've been given Jesus' righteousness. That God views you through the lens of Christ and that you're clothed with his righteousness. You're now a saint in him, set apart, sanctified, holy in his righteousness. Now here's, here's a way to think about it. I'm going to target this illustration to the kids here in the room. So imagine, so imagine you have to take a really hard test at school and you know you're going to fail because it's way too hard. I think I have a slide here. You know, you're, you're, you know, it, you get it, you're going to, you know you're going to get an F. The test is way too hard. But here's the gospel. Jesus, Jesus comes along and says, hey, I got it. I'm going to take the test for you. And Jesus takes the test for you. And if you could ever get an A++++++, that's what you get. Because Jesus takes it for you. You get an A+. And the struggle, that's the gospel. The struggle, is the hard part about living the Christian life is that we forget Jesus has taken the test for us. And forgetting, forgetting that can lead to two struggles or, or two kinds of responses that I think cause us to miss what Paul's calling us to here in this passage. The, the one response that forgetting what Jesus has done for us, the one response it can lead to is this attitude of it doesn't matter how I live. God loves me just as I am. And therefore, I really, I can do whatever I want. You know, think about it. If Jesus takes a test for you, why study? If Jesus takes a test for you, why learn? Why try hard? But the gospel, see, the gospel story is that You've been freed. You've been freed to work hard and to study and to learn and to grow out of gratitude for what Jesus has done for you. And you'll notice that's the one positive instruction Paul gives in this passage. It's the one positive he gives to counter out, counter, uh, counter out the negatives. In verse 4, he says, instead of doing these other things... Let there be thanksgiving. We live for Jesus. We want to become like him because we're thankful. We're thankful for how he has loved us. You see, we like to say God loves you just as you are, but God loves you too much to let you stay as you are. And, and his love is intended to melt your heart, to soften your heart, so that you have a desire out of gratitude for what he's done for you to live your life for him. Now, you could, you could read, uh, you could understand this and, and think, you know, God doesn't care how I live. He forgives me. He loves me. It doesn't matter. But you see Paul's words, and it's obviously not true. I mean, notice the scope of the negatives Paul gives here. He talks about sexual immorality, and that has to do with anything outside 
Uh, sec- any sexual expression outside the bond- bonds of marriage, outside that covenant relationship. So how you use your body matters. And he talks about impurity. That more has to do with your mind. So how you think, how you use your thoughts, that matters. And, and covetousness, you know, it refers to greed. So your money, how you spend your money, that matters to Jesus. And he talks about language, so your tongue, how you talk, how you speak, that matters to Jesus. See the scope? You know, Jesus isn't satisfied with you offering him a little bit of your life. He wants all of it. He wants all of you. And the Dutch politician, theologian, I reference this quote often, Abraham Kuyper, he puts it this way, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Mine. Your sexuality, your thought life, your money, your tongue, how you speak, it's all mine. It all matters to me. And Jesus tells you, I freed you. You're now a child of God. And this is how you're to live. This is how you're to express yourself in the freedom of what I've purchased for you. And, and, and so that's the first kind of response we may have. We hear the gospel and says, it doesn't matter how I live. But that's what many people have called cheap grace. That's taking what Christ has done for you and saying, hey, thanks, but I still want to live my life the way I want to live it. And Jesus is like, wait a minute. It reminds me um, of a story I heard this week of a physician in London who specializes in colon cancer, and he had operated on a guy, and over the time span of five years, he'd been in remission, and cancer never came back, and so the doctor congratulated him and said, hey, you're cured. And the man was so excited, and he said, doctor, thank you. My wife and I would love to show you our appreciation by taking you out to dinner, you and your wife. And so they had this lovely dinner. They went to a restaurant, a nice restaurant. The bill came, and the patient took the bill. He looked at the bill, and he looked at the doctor, and he looked at the bill, and he looked at the doctor. And the doctor, you know, a bit of kind of uncomfortable, the doctor meekly kind of said, should we split it? And the patient said, that would be great. Now, I, I mean, that's... I mean, that's terrible. (laughs) He invited him out to dinner to thank him for what he had done, and then he makes him split the bill with him. That's not an expression of gratitude. And that so often reflects us as Christians. I think we're thankful for what Jesus has done, but we're unwilling to express that gratitude if it means we're going to be uncomfortable, if it's going to hurt, if we're going to have to sacrifice something. That's us. If we take the gospel and, and we just kind of say, you know, it really doesn't matter how I express my gratitude, Lord. I'm just going to do what I want. So that's this kind of laissez-faire response. And when we're reading what Paul says here, it's to say, well, you know, it doesn't matter. The other response is to read this list and to feel condemned by it. Because you look at your life and you say, man, I am, I am nowhere close to living my life and to obeying uh, what Paul is talking about here. 
And, and you read verse 5 here, and Paul says, you know, anyone who's expressing themselves this way or living this way has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. I mean, no inheritance. And some of you might be thinking, is that me? Because I look at my life, and I'm messing up all the time, and I'm, I'm caught up in this addiction, and I can't, I can't beat this. My life is a mess, and I keep falling into the same traps over and over and over again. And so you're, you're, you're left in this sense of shame and guilt and condemnation. But friends, if, if you're there, can I encourage you this morning to say, if you're in Christ, if you're in Christ, He is with you and He does forgive you and the gospel is true for you. If there's any sense of struggle, if there's any sense that you, you have a desire to love him and show your gratitude, if there's anything in you, that is the Spirit of God. That is the Spirit of God. And I would venture to say, Paul is not speaking about you when he says in verse 5, no inheritance in the kingdom of God. If you're in Christ, you're in Christ. Your identity is sure. If I'll go back to the test-taking example, you are an honor roll student. You, 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 are, you have the highest marks. The problem is you keep viewing yourself as a failure. You can't get that F identity out of your head. I've been listening to the book Educated by Tara Westcott. It's a powerful story of a woman raised in an abusive home in Idaho where she was verbally and physically abused for years. And her father, because of his extreme religious convictions within the moral, uh, Mormon faith, refused to let her or her siblings go to any schooling of any kind. Uh, no education, no, no formal education at, at all. And yet... Tara ended up, through various events, ended up at a graduate program at Cambridge, one of the greatest universities, best universities in the world. And during her time there, the whole time she felt so out of place. She felt like she didn't deserve to be there. Uh, her self-identity was so out of whack, she didn't, she didn't believe she belonged. And, and one night she was at a, a dinner gathering of other uh, professors and students at the university, you know, it's, they're all dressed up. She's there in a black shirt, black pants, kit, black kids. You know, her, even her dress, her attire reflected how she viewed herself. And at one point, she left the dinner, and the professor who had been encouraging her, encouraging her uh, the whole time, followed her and was, was talking with her and saying, Tara, what is wrong? Why do you have this view of yourself uh, that you don't belong here? And she, she stops and looks at her professor and says, I would enjoy serving this dinner more than eating it. And I heard that and I thought, my goodness, that is how we are as Christians so often. We do not understand how to be loved. We have this self-condemning understanding of ourselves that blocks us from experiencing the love of God to hearing his word that tells us we are his children, we are his sons, we are his daughters. We are children of the king. 
We're part of his family. It's so hard for us to believe we deserve to be loved. And the first step is to realize you don't. (laughs) You don't deserve to be loved. But God loves you anyways. That's the gospel. And we look at Paul's instructions here in this passage and we see the ways we fail to live up to our calling. And for some of you, you hear Paul's words. You can't help to fall into that shame, that condemnation, because you're failing time and time again. You're, tr- you're trying, perhaps, and, and, you know, but these behaviors, they rear their like, ugly heads in your lives. And you think to yourself, Jesus must be so disappointed in me. I don't deserve his love. And again, that's the good news. You don't, but he loves you anyways. Now, uh, I'll end with this story by author Harrison Scott Key. He wrote this article re- recently. He says, Confessions, the article was entitled, Confessions of a Bad Christian. <laughs> uh, he, he, here's some of the things. I'm going to read some of the portions of his article because I found them very helpful. And I think some of us struggle uh, in grasping this concept when it comes to church and being a community, a family of faith. <clears throat> uh, Key says this, Confessions of a bad Christian. I may be a Christian, but I'm a very bad one. He says, I'm standing in my kitchen dressed in business casual, preparing to fellowship with certain people who, if I see them in a liquor store, may not actually speak to me. And so I pray for deliverance from this feeling that I don't belong that those people are not my people, that I don't deserve favor from God who may not even be there. I don't love my neighbors. I can't even tell you their names. One is named Janet or Joy or Cheryl. Uh, All I know, she has two loud, tiny dogs that I pray will die soon. (laughs) She's too old to be cutting her grass, and I should volunteer to help her mow it because one day she's going to die out there in the yard. Pray for me. It will have to be you who does the praying. (laughs) I start in praying about a friend's fragile marriage, and in a second or two, I'm wondering why Amazon makes it so difficult to return gifts. I'm sorry. I don't like church as much as many of my Christian friends say they do, although I have a feeling most are there for the same reasons I am, not because church is fun, but because it's a kind of hospital. And that, that's why I shared that, because that's how I want you to understand what King's Church, what we're trying to be here each Sunday, it's a kind of hospital. You're, you're coming because you're sick. You're coming because you're sick. Jesus said in Mark 2.17, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Are you sick? This morning. How you answer that question says everything about why you're here and what you want to get out of being here. And there's a difference between acknowledging you're not perfect, that you make mistakes. Anybody can acknowledge that. You admit you mess up sometimes. That's very different than realizing you're spiritually sick. Because if you're if you, if you tend to think, well, I mess up like everybody else, then you still believe that you can fix yourself. You still believe it's not a big deal. 
You still believe that if you learn the right technique or you learn the right motivation or, or you, you read the right book that you can fix your life, that you can become that kind of person you want to become, a good person, a loving person, a loyal person. But if you're sick, if you're truly sick, you know you need help from the outside. You need somebody to come along who can heal you. You can't heal yourself. You can't heal yourself. And so when you read these words this morning, you read Paul's passage, whether, whether you're responding with a laissez-faire attitude or whether you're responding and feeling condemned, Jesus is calling you to come to him. Calling you to himself. He's saying, I am here. I want relationship with you. Wherever you're at on the spectrum. And we want to be a church that's calling you to him. Not to some set of morals. Not to some restrictive moral code. But to the living Christ. Who was raised to life and power. And can change you. As you come into that relationship with him. So let me pray for us to that end. Lord, thank you for this chance to come together to be challenged by Paul's words and we'll continue reflecting on these ideas next week. And I pray though that we would kind of stay in this place where where Jesus we we allow ourselves the space for the Spirit to work in our hearts and to maybe show us things that we were unwilling to see before. And Spirit, we know that your job is not to condemn, but to convict and to shed light on you, Jesus, so that our eyes might be fixed on you, not ourselves. And so may we live out of that freedom this morning as we prepare for the supper, I pray that we would hear your voice calling us and that we would come and respond. In your name we pray. Amen. We'd like to take a few.